Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome everyone to another episode of Revolution Recap. It's been a few weeks, but the Revs exited the MLS's back tournament with a 1-0 loss to the Philadelphia Union. Sergio Santos scored the game's lone goal as the Revolution offense never found their footing without Carly's heel. The Revs will be returning to the field on August 21st against the same Philadelphia Union, and just like the last matchup, there will be no Carly's heel after he underwent successful Achilles surgery this week. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today from the Bent Musket is Seth McComer. Seth, how's it going? It's great. I am wearing my JLab uh, headphones, so I think I'm all MLS in. I think those uh, advertisements during the MLS is back tournament have truly worked. So bravo to the advertising team. And also joining me today, also from the Bent Musket, we have Jake Katniss. Jake, how's it going? I I received no such headphones. I assume because, as always, MLS in New England hates Connecticut. Well, that is true. I I didn't receive any headphones either. Um, so I assume that was an oversight, but in your case, it's definitely because you reside in the state of Connecticut. Also, mm-hmm. the last time we did a podcast, someone correct, someone, someone pointed out, Jake, you weren't on this one, but we started trashing Connecticut about 30 seconds in, uh, and someone <laughs> pointed out that it, it doesn't take us very long for us to start taking shots on, on Connecticut, even when you're not on the podcast. Yeah, if, if I don't mention it and get it out of the way first and, and get the self-depreciation out of there, it just sort of snowballs. Yeah, I, hopefully there are, are listeners from Connecticut that know it comes from a place of love. Uh, and we do, we don't totally hate your state. We like New Haven pizza, uh, and I'm sure there's some other redeeming qualities, but it's not. Yeah, exactly. But also the number one number one COVID state in the union. Well, we won't touch that one. But anyway, um, <laughs> since we missed our podcast a couple of weeks ago, I want to kind of get some quick uh, key takeaways from you guys, Jake. Since since you're you're already talking, what was your key takeaway from the Philadelphia Union loss a few weeks ago? You know, my my takeaway from from the Union loss and and the tournament overall in general. Were, were two things. Number one, the defense was pretty darn good. This includes Matt Turner, who obviously the turn training is amazing. And damn it, we can't finish. And I'm not sure if it's a chance creation problem or if it's a just a straight finishing problem. But even the match where Carlos Hill had like 20 key passes against like DC or Montreal, whoever it was, New England really lacked to generate big chances in the entire tournament. And, it, and you saw that in particular against Philadelphia. You know that Andre Blake is a brick wall. He loves to play against the Rebs. He loves to stand on his head against the Rebs. So you've really got to get inside the box and create a lot of good chances, and New England never did that, and that was a constant problem. Didn't matter if he was on the field. Didn't matter if Bo and Books and whoever you had in the offense. New England was really only able to generate some half chances, and and some of those half chances were really, really good and, and could have gone in, but at the end of the day, when you go back and you look at some of the expected goal maps, there's a lot of shots from outside the box, a lot of low percentage shots, just just overall, just it, it seemed like it was still a little bit for the Rebs in preseason on, on offense, but on defense, there's a lot to be impressed with. Absolutely, and yeah, I think they end the the four game stretch the MLS's back tournament with two goals conceded, but also two goals scored. So not not the Rebs we are used to of the past, where normally their defense is uh, conceding faster than they can score, and, and certainly not the Rebs that we expected with three designated players. Um, we were kind of expecting to be kind of a high offense, so a bit of a disappointment tournament offensively overall and certainly against a good defensive team uh, with a hot goalkeeper in Andre Blake uh, like Philadelphia it certainly was a poor poor matchup especially without Carly's heel Seth what was your tor- what was your uh, key takeaway from Philadelphia 
Yeah, I think that you had to clean up the mistakes. Uh, right before the goal in the 63rd minute, we saw Gustavo Ball receive the ball and then try to play it back while Tejan Buchanan was trying to overrun them. So there's a miscommunication there that immediately leads to uh, the game-winning goal. And I think in a tournament where uh, things were pretty cagey, where your offense isn't producing a lot, you have to make sure you clean up those mistakes and you avoid those mistakes. And we saw it earlier in the t- uh, tournament with Antonio Delamea, probably a little fatigue going on, uh, but certainly a lack of awareness trying to play a hospital ball back to Matt Turner, leading to a goal and leading to right now we look at as three points dropped in the regular season, as we look at the regular season, hopefully starting up. So instead of three points, they're now uh, just one point. So I guess two points dropped, but those types of things uh, you really need to clean up. You, you have to avoid those types of mistakes. Uh, I'll give up a pass. Cause as Jake mentioned, it is basically a preseason tournament that we are looking at very hot conditions, very hard conditions with the amount of games that are being played. But you really hope that you will clean up those mistakes as we look to hopefully uh, jumpstart and head into a regular season. Yeah, we got some questions early on in the tournament about you know how, how many games will it take to shake off the rust and how many games it'll take for the three designated players to all kind of hit on the same page. And, and obviously Carly's heel put a big, pretty big dent into that one. You know, th- this team never really got going, and you wonder if it's more of a systematic problem. And if, if those sloppy mistakes, you know, if, if four games isn't enough, uh, when will they wake up? So hopefully a few more weeks of training, uh, they hit the ground running when we enter uh, part two of the regular, or I guess part three uh, of the regular season. There was one question that we got that I kind of wanted to touch upon because it kind of overlaps with my key takeaway, but Adam Buxa never really got going in this tournament. He scored the one goal against DC, which was to his credit, a very impressive header off, off of a deflected cross. He angles it perfectly past Bill Hamid. Uh, and he, he did score one goal early in the season against Chicago. But outside of that, he's been fairly, very quiet. Um, it isn't really getting the ball much uh, outside of those major chances. Didn't seem to be on the right page with Gustavo Bo uh, at, at certain points in the tournament. So we did get a question here. Uh, curious your thoughts on Buxa through six games now. I feel the team was really struggling to connect with him during the tournament. Either he's in the wrong position or they're playing the wrong balls. Either way, there are so many times his positioning uh, and where they were playing the ball weren't even in the same zip code. So, Jake, I'll start with you. Are you concerned about Adam Buxa at all? Uh, I'm not concerned. I, I think biggest thing i can't remember i think it was charles bain who was the one who tweeted it was like the the new england revolution for the first time in their history have had three designated players on the field and they've been on the field twice and i don't think gill finished one of the games so in six games over the course of seemingly six months buscabo and gill haven't been on the field together uh new england has always struggled seemingly to get the ball up to the striker anyway this includes when you had Charlie Davies and Kai Kamara and Teal Bunbury and Juan Aguil. The striker position has always been a very difficult position for New England to figure out because I don't think they know how to play with a lone striker. And the problem is that you now sort of have two strikers on the field and Bo really should be the support striker or the off striker. Yes, Bo's amazing. Yes, he can finish. We all know this. But I really think you need to be playing a two, a two striker format and you have Bo roaming around, connecting with the midfield and then connecting with Buxka. And if you bypass Bo, that means you get two guys in the box, probably with a trailer from the midfield. That's the system that New England should, I think, be running. And instead, they're trying to dink and dunk like they always have back in the Lee Wynn days where, you know, Lee Wynn was working off of Rowe and Diego and Davies. And it just it just worked. There was a fluidity to that. And New England doesn't have that yet. I think it will come in time. But I think we all need to, to realize that 2021 as a, as a competitive season was shot four months ago five months ago. There's nothing really to gain here except, in my opinion, fitness and experience and team chemistry. That's it. 
we're not looking for wins this year. We're not looking for playoffs or anything like that. If we get it, it's great. Very similar to last year. Listen, build on the year before. Bruce Arena was building on God knows what from the Friedel era. Now you've got the COVID pandemic. Just settle down. Take a step back. Learn from this so that in 2022, I'm sorry, 2021, you can show up with your 3DPs with a full preseason with an extra 20 games, give or take, of figuring out how your offense works without Carlos Gill. So that when he does come back, you might have a better idea of how your team can function with Carlos Gill. A pretty uh, well, and you're kind of jumping ahead too because uh, uh, there are some questions about how we like our chances throughout the rest of the season without Carlos Heel. Uh, kind of transitioning back to Buxa, I want to get Seth's opinion. Um, Seth, Adam Buxa, obviously not on the same page. What are your thoughts of him through six games? Yeah, I've been impressed by his hold-up play. He's been really good about coming into space, grabbing the ball, and allowing someone like Christian Pena to then run forward and uh, create opportunities and try to get behind the defense. Um, he's shown some really raw skill. I'm sorry, not raw skill. Really sharp skill um, with his ball handling in the box. Uh, what I've had an issue with is that that chemistry is not quite there yet. Like there's times when he's dropping in his space when Carlos Hill was looking forward and he just kind of gets out of the way of Carlos Hill instead of trying to make a run or draw a defender with him. Or there's times when it looks like Bo and, and Hill are connecting more than Buxa and uh, Bo are. So there's just some miscommunication happening. The chemistry is not quite there yet. There's been a couple of balls that I thought that are in the box that are around the six yard ball uh, yard line where I thought Buxa would hopefully get to. I thought those are the types of opportunities for him to finish. Um, and he's not finishing them yet, sometimes because they're out of reach, sometimes because his run's not fast enough. I also have a little bit of issue with how he's pressing. Uh, you know, I think we're used to Teal Bunbury up there, and Teal Bunbury obviously brings a lot of energy. And I don't think Buxa's pressuring quite as much and really starting the press uh, from the front end. That said, I, I, I'm just willing to give it more time. I'm willing to see how things roll out. This is such a weird season where he comes in, he has a preseason, he gets a couple games, then a big long break. Then we have a, about a month of preseason before going into this tournament in really difficult conditions. And I think that you know when you have players like Bo, who's just such a unique player, he kind of floats everywhere, it's hard to play with him. You know, like you have to figure out where he's going to go uh, because he's not a normal second striker. So hopefully as time goes on, uh, Buxa starts to understand what his role is, where he needs to be, and they start to build more chemistry. Because during this tournament, it was very clear that Buxa uh, and Bo didn't have the same chemistry as Bo and Heel. Like Bo and Heel constantly were looking at each other. And there was even times when Buxa might have been the better choice but Bo ends up going to heel instead because they already have that chemistry. So I'm hoping as time goes on, we see more relationship, we see more chemistry. Um, am I a little concerned? Yeah, I mean, because we talked about this before the season began, that this team really needs a guy who can be a finisher, a guy who is going to um, create opportunities for himself and also just get on the end of opportunities created for him. And he hasn't quite shown to be that guy yet. He's shown – uh, sharpness. He's shown some really special moments, but I, I think you want a little bit more of that. I also kind of look at this tournament, and there were rumors at one point that BWP was potentially someone that was going to go to the revolution. And BWP has a pretty good tournament with LAFC, obviously a different system, obviously a different setup, but LAFC was missing their big player in Carlos Vela. So I just kind of wonder, you know, I think overall I'm happy with a, a young, promising striker, Adam Buxa. But would the Revs be better off in 2020 if BWP was playing Buxa's role? 
That's uh, a, an interesting uh, comparison, an interesting thought. Bradley Wright Phillips did have a, a phenomenal tournament for LAFC, and, and LAFC didn't, you know, there was no lack of goal scoring from them, even without Carlos Vela. So it is a, a pretty interesting what if. Jake, you, you did mention uh, a name there that I thought might be a, a good comp of Kai Kamara. And, you know, Kai Kamara came here. Obviously, he was, you know, I, I think it was a se- season or a couple seasons after his near MVP season or after his MVP season. And, you know, you could have the most talented striker in the world. But, you know, if they rely on service and you're not getting service, they're, they're going to have a lack of goals. And so I, I'm starting to have that kind of thought creep in my head that Adam Buchsa might be Kai Kamara 2.0. Uh, but I'm not willing to give up on him just yet. He, he's been disappointing so far to a lot of people, but he still has two goals through six games. Expand that over 34 games. That's about 11-ish goals the season which you know is not a whole lot to write home about but you know that, that's not terrible it's not uh, Juan Fernando Caicedo level um, you know you're, you're certainly getting more out of Adam Buxa than uh, you know Caicedo too or, or Juan Agadello so uh, I, I'm not writing off Buxa yet we've only had 150-ish minutes with the three designated players I think the, the jury is still out I think I think Kai Kamara scored something like 20 goals in 50 games, give or take. Like Kai Kamara put up numbers. It was a bad team, but Kai Kamara was successful as a poacher. I don't know if Buxka is a true poacher, but I do think he's a true number nine. I think he can do a little bit of everything up there. I just it, It's going to take a little bit of time, and this year's a wash now anyway, and it has been for several months. So it, it is an interesting dilemma with the dynamic of Bo and Buxka up top as as Seth mentioned, there there is a lack of chemistry, and I think a lot of that's tactics, and I think that's what that's what Bruce Arena and the team has to figure out. One person too, I want to touch on really, really, really briefly uh, before we get going is Tayon Buchanan. Tayon Buchanan did get some minutes uh, in this tournament. Really, the only young, quote unquote, young guy. Uh, the, the only young depth piece that we saw a little bit more than we thought we would see. Um, Seth, I want to just get your, your thoughts on Tayon Buchanan, what you saw from him. Some people liked what they saw. Some people very, very frustrated with him. Yeah, he's really raw in my opinion. I kind of liked him as an option coming off the bench, maybe in the last 30 minutes to run at guys. Uh, we've seen in the past that he's obviously very quick, but he's really good with ball handling skills. And I think that to play him in, in the beginning – where he doesn't, his passing is not the greatest, uh, where his connections aren't the greatest. I think that that's a tall ass from this at, at this point. Uh, we're talking about a guy who has not had a lot of starts. And I think it really hurt him that um, he didn't go on loan earlier in his career, that he didn't get more minutes uh, playing for a, a lower division. I think it's great that he got some minutes here, but I just, I don't think he was up for the task. Um, there were some like moments where you see like, okay, that's promising. There's a good opportunity there. There's that in, this, in the second game. In the third game, in group play, he almost scores a goal, but I believe that Buxa is called offside, so therefore it doesn't count. Um, that would have been a really great opportunity for him. But right now, I just think that he's a little too raw. Um, but maybe he gets more opportunities with Carlos Heel being out. Jake, anything to add on that one? No, I think Tejan reminds me a lot of Teal Bunbury in the same way that I love Teal Bunbury, but he is very frustrating sometimes to watch because you know that the talent is there, but it just doesn't always come together. I, I think T- uh, Tejan, in a very similar fashion, could be that that target winger, two-way player type option that Teal has sort of developed into with New England. Like I said, there, there is a lot to like, and Seth is absolutely right. Tejon Buchanan would have been a perfect Rebs 2 USL1 type player to get a lot of minutes. And that failure is something that we will hopefully not see going forward, but that's something where Renix, Tejon, a few others um, desperately needed minutes in, in the USL or out on loan. Now you're going to see, hopefully with the Rebs 2 setup, um, those types of issues uh, not 
pop up so many times because I think Tejan with with an extra you know couple thousand minutes in lower division soccer would be a much more polished product than than as Seth says the very raw athletic talent that he is right now. And it's worth noting too that Tejan Buchanan left uh, college two years early. He came out into the super draft as a super as, as a as a sophomore. Uh, it's possible that he missed you know maybe those two years of college uh, would have helped a little bit more than playing here and there over two or three years. Um, overall, just real quick too, I want to get your thoughts on the performance overall. I think a lot of people were frustrated. You know, obviously losing to Philadelphia is never fun, but I, I think at the beginning of the tournament, we kind of predicted the Revs to come out of this group second in the group. We thought maybe around a 16 exit was kind of where this team was right now. Um, obviously Carlisle heel, you know, what would have been if he, he stays healthy? I, I think it would have been a completely different story, but, um, Jake, just real quick, looking at the tournament as a whole, um, was the end result disappointing for the revolution? Um, I think how it occurred, it was disappointing. Obviously, once you get to the knockout stages, you'd like to take it seriously, at least if only for the fun of it. Obviously, the teams right now that are still in the that, that made the final, I think we're having a lot of fun. Orlando at home, obviously without fans, isn't a team we thought would be there. Minnesota made a good run. There's teams that you weren't expect that had fun with this. And I think the Revolution being unable to have that fun, I think that would have been a good, from a chemistry standpoint, would have been a lot of, of good things that would have happened. Um, the, the only key takeaway here is you played three regular season games. You got five points. Um, there's nothing wrong with that at all in the standings. You know, would you have liked to beat EC? Probably. Could you have beaten Toronto? Probably. You know, as I said, did, did you drop two points in either one of those games? You probably did. Is it the end of the world? No, no. In, in, in the long run, five points from three games is nothing Nothing to write home about, but also you, you didn't screw up the group stage. You got out of the group, arguably should have won the group. You could make a good case for that. Um, I, I think the overall takeaway from the tournament is um, you got your regular season points. You sort of got healthy until you lost Carlos Gill, uh, Carlos Hill again. So it, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, the disappointment is more from the injury, not from necessarily the knockout stage results. Seth, were you disappointed with the uh, results overall? Yeah. Kind of. Um, I mostly look at that DC game and, and you drop two points. Like that's the long and the short of it. I mean, it's foolish to give away those two points because of a back pass against uh, Iguain, you know, against a guy who's a coach now, oh. as well as a player. I mean, he's very, very good. Don't get me wrong. But like when he's coming off the bench and pressing you and that's how he creates a goal, mostly by your mistake, those are definitely uh, two points dropped. You know, that, that's no other way to describe that. And with that, there's also this question of, like, what was this tournament for the Revs? Was it about getting points in the regular season? If that's the case, it's kind of disappointing that you drop two points in against a, a team that is a rival. And, and you already have not been doing well at the beginning of the season. If it's about winning the tournament, obviously they didn't do that. So um, that's a disappointment to look at. If it's about trying to get some guys some minutes, uh, we really didn't see a lot of the young guys play. Uh, I was disappointed because... Uh, it was talked about how Rivera is going to be someone who's going to get some minutes, and he did not get any minutes. Uh, Teju uh, Buchanan is basically the only individual who really benefited from the time in Orlando as a young guy. Um, so, I mean, five points is fine. Uh, you know, we, we, we got to see some soccer, which from my perspective is, is really positive. I really enjoyed it. But overall, the results were kind of underwhelming. Uh, and I think, obviously, the, the loss of heel – is the the big takeaway uh so you know you can look at that and say once heel goes down uh the revs had no chance of really winning this tournament so it's more mostly about managing and i would kind of agree with that uh we see that 
Orlando's in the final, and a big part of that has to do with Nani. I mean, Nani's been absolutely amazing. So for most teams, if you take away their star player, then the possibility of winning games, winning the tournament, kind of goes out the window. So I think that that skews things a little bit. But I think in retrospect, I would have liked to see more, either in the group stage, either in the knockout uh, stage, or in the way of giving other players uh, opportunities to get minutes to be seen under Bruce Arena. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to repeat, uh, or I'm not going to give my thoughts because it'll be just very redundant. I think you guys uh, explained it very well that, um, you know, it's it's not necessarily the results that are disappointing. It's how how it all occurred. Uh, we didn't get to see our youth, uh, and, and we didn't uh, see a lot of goals. Uh, so I, it wasn't really the tournament I think a lot of us were expecting. And obviously we have lost Carles Heel, who had Achilles surgery. He is out for three to five months, according to the Revolution press release. Obviously this is the injury that he uh, suffered in preseason and this has been nagging him. It was the reason he was out uh, the first two games of the season. And uh, apparently he was never at 100%. He said at a press conference uh, before the first game, he was never 100%. Uh, and it was coming along and, and obviously he uh, aggravated that heel um, uh, his Achilles in that second game. We'll, we'll get right to it. Josh Nye asks us, who should temporarily replace Carly's heel? And Revolution Report also asks us, what's the starting lineup without heel? So uh, I think we've seen when Carly's heel isn't available, Bruce Arena usually goes with speedy wingers. Um, so when Carly's heel goes out, the last time it was Pena on the left and Pena Buchanan on the right. I don't think I, Buchanan did enough to keep that spot. Um, maybe if he sees him as a future and that he wants to give him more minutes in this very strange season, maybe he continues to play him there. Uh, but I think if you're going to go with that strategy, my suggestion is that you play uh, Teal Bunbury on the left and you play Pania on the right. Uh, we saw this at the beginning of the year. That allows Pania to cut in and use his left foot. who's a pretty talented guy on his left foot. And that allows Brandon Bai to get forward uh, and, and provide the width. Brandon Bai we talked about his best quality really being those, those low early crosses. Uh, and he didn't see a lot of those during the tournament. Um, so I think that if you want to try to replicate some of the things we saw before, that's an option. Uh, if you want to try to go more like for like, I think you could do uh, Diego Fagundes on the right-hand side as a Carlos heel row, keep Pania on the left. Uh, I think that that's really positive because if Pena's on the left, he can be high and wide, so he can just be running out guys in space. As opposed to on the right, he has to cut in and you know try to get less space in that moment. It has to be more technical to try to create his opportunities. But I mean, we again we saw just an interesting tournament where Diego Fagunes was a starter at the beginning of the year, and then he kind of fell down the depth chart uh, quite a bit. And Tejon began and was starting over him. So I'm not sure if Bruce Arena would go that route. That said, we saw that Kellen Rowe was not a starter in the first two uh, games of the season. And then we take this break, we come back for the MLS's back tournament, and he's patrolling things in the middle. And he's getting a lot of praise from a lot of people. And as of right now, I I would say that he's a starter next to Matt Polster. If Matt Polster is as good as everyone is saying, he is during the training sessions right now. So if if I were to guess right now, I would go with uh, Bunbury on the left and on the right, I would put Pena, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past Bruce to go with Pania on the left and then put uh, Diego Fagundes playing that role of Carlos Heel. And Jake, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Carlos Heel? Uh, how to replace him? Do you agree with Seth or, or do you have a different lineup of your own? The same, the same concept Seth is putting out, I completely agree with. I just, I do not want Gustavo Bo as the number 10. I will continue to say this. He's not a number 10. I don't think he possesses the ball well enough. See the 
mix up with him and, and Buchanan. I think you want him closer to goal. Um, that means you're going to need the rest of the midfielders to combine with him or have Buxa be the holdup man and work off him. You need to figure out tactically uh, how this is going to work. I think the big addition where we did not see, and I think desperately needed in, in the uh, MLS's back COVID Cup tournament, uh, Matt Polster is going to be, I think, a gigantic boon um, to this team as just an all-around, just solid, organized, number six type player. I think you just have to figure out if you're going to give him a partner and stay with a 4-2-3-1, or if you are going to go with two true strikers, which you have, of how do you align the midfield? Do you keep Pania out wide? Do you go with something like Diego and uh, Rowe or Caldwell? Do you have shuttlers in a diamond? There's there's something that, you're, that Bruce Arena is going to have to tinker with, which is something I'm fine with because, again, I think this year is a wash anyway. Um, so I think you need to figure out a way how to not necessarily, again, re- you know, replace Carlos Hill. But figure out a way how, if we if we can't play with him, figure out a system that when he comes back, he can make better. So that everyone else around him is ready to go, and then he shows up, and it's like, oh, I had 12 key passes in a mess of a formation? How many can I get when we actually know what we're doing? Yeah, and, and you mentioned Gustavo Bo. I just want to kind of touch on him, too, because I think he is also among the league leaders in key passes, but a lot of them come from set pieces. Um, you know, and, and obviously his pass accuracy is nowhere close to Carly's uh, or yeah, Carly's heel. Um, so it, I, I am kind of a little shy, you know, gun shy to keep running out Gustavo Bo to be, try to be Carly's heel and then put a Tay on, on the right wing, uh, which we saw in the tournament. Um, this is really Bruce Arena's first true test. Um, I mean, not his first true test as uh, Rev's coach, but tactically uh, removing Carly's heel out of that lineup. Um, it's going to be a, a real struggle to see how to bring back that production because truthfully, there's really no way you can replace Carly's heel. It's just a matter of you know the the best way going forward. And I don't think Tayon Buchanan uh, is uh, the the number one choice. Uh, the other thing too, I'll, I'll mention about Gustavo Bo and, and Jake. You made a point earlier about uh, Gustavo Bo. Kind of his shot selection is you know he's not getting close to goal. You know I, I think his shots get a little bit worse without Carly's heel in the lineup. And just looking at his stats so far in the 2020 season, most of which has been without um, Carly's heel, he's taken 25 shots and his expected goals are 1.94. And so his ex- average expected goals per shot is 0. 0.0776, uh, which is not very good. Most of them are coming from way outside of the box. And, and I know he's Gustavo Bo, and he can work miracles, uh, and he's going to take shots when he, he gets a look at goal. Um, but, you know, the, the one goal on 25 shots, I think, is a, a clear sign that he needs uh, Carly's heel. Yeah, and that, that just backs up, again, the eye test. We've seen New England haven't had a lot of great shots inside the box, a lot of big chances. Even, I think, Books's header, which was off of a deflected clearance, I don't even think that one was a very high percentage shot because of the nature of the deflection and how the shot came to be in existence. So, yeah, that, that again, ex- expected goals, you know, stats and analytics are, are wonderful, but they back up what we see. We shouldn't be using the stats and say, oh, that's terrible. I said, no, 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 we already know it's not good. This is why. Moving on to, uh, we got another question here. Uh, Carl S., who is a, a longtime Revolutionary Cap listener, he asks us, people have been asking me, do the Revs need heel to win the ship? I'd say yes, but I'd like to specifically hear from Greg. And uh, I know Carl is a big fan of the podcast. I would say that they need Carly's heel to win the ship. I know he specifically asked me, but I want Seth's opinion too. Uh, Seth, what are your expectations for Carly's heel uh, or, or the Revs team without Carly's heel the rest of the season? And do you think they could win the ship? 
I'm a little nervous because I think that Greg, you are obviously authority on this uh, question. <laughs> so I'm afraid to, to answer this, but uh, since you asked me so kindly, uh, yeah, I think so. I think, of course, if we're talking about the championship, uh, when we say the ship, um, and as opposed to some sort of boating issue, uh, yeah, I think that, that there obviously needs to have Carlos Hill in order to win the championship. So much runs through him right now. Um, I mean, like in the first game, he had 12 opportunities created, correct? Yes, something like that. It was double yeah. digits. It was double digits. And I believe he created more than any other opportunities uh, compared to anyone else on the field. So he's very, very good. And I think that the other part here is that he's good everywhere on the field. Um, there are sometimes these players that are excellent, but they only want to do it on the attacking end. Carlos Heel fights everywhere. Carlos Heel is a, a guy you look to and say, I want to fight for that guy. I want to play with that guy. Um, so, um, like... Like uh, Jake was saying, Gustavo Bode can't fill that role. And up to this point, that's often what um, what Bruce Arena has been doing. He's been asking uh, Carlos uh, Bode to play that number 10 role. So without him, without Carlos Heel, uh, there's a lot of questions about how this team will operate. Obviously, we have some time here. Maybe they can figure something out. I think Polster is going to be a really big asset because he can hit those diagonal balls that can open up um, those attacking uh, left and right back. And I think that that's a real big positive for the Revs is that Boutner has been pretty solid. Uh, we've seen some good stuff out of by. So maybe you can start to unlock things that way as opposed to always going through Carlos Heel. But I think we've seen that um, this is a guy who I think only missed eight minutes during his first season in MLS. You need him on the field. And if the Revs are going to be good, he needs to be on the field. So now that he's not on the field, I think the chances of winning a championship have declined quite a bit. Before, uh, and, and I know Jake kind of gave uh, a very grim outlook on the rest of the season and, and kind of wants to play the youth and, and kind of want to build towards 2021. Are you on the same page, Seth, where without Carly's heel, um, you know, I, I know MLS is expanding their team, their, you know, the number of teams, the playoffs to whatever, nine or 10 or, or whatever, you know, it seems to be All changing. Yeah, it seems to be changing every other you know day now. But uh, are, are you kind of on the same page as Jake of kind of waving the white flag for 2020 without Carly's heel and, and just kind of, um, you know, trying to grow and improve the team for in the long run? Um, no, I think that you go out and you play your best 11 for, for a while because this is MLS and you never know. Once you get in the playoffs, it's exciting. Anyone can beat anyone. Uh, I would like to see more young guys get opportunities, um, especially with the five sub rule. I mean, I think we saw Bruce Arena not really use that that much, which is interesting because he said he was a big proponent of the five sub rule. Uh, so maybe you could jump, you know, throw some guys in there and get them opportunities. I think we're seeing that the schedule is pretty packed during these first six games that are coming back. So I hope that um, there is a a little bit of uh, an understanding that you can give some guys some opportunities during that uh, run of play. But I also think that we have revs too now, um, and I think that we saw on Friday night that. This is an opportunity for Firmino, for Anking, for Rivera. That's their opportunity to get those minutes. So they're not just sitting on the bench and participating in practice. They now have a, uh, a route to, to impress and show that they should be first-team players. Um, so I'm not ready to say, uh, let's just play all the young guys and see what happens. I say play your strongest lineup. Uh, keep things tight experiment a little bit about tactics to see what things look like uh, because this is an opportunity to get books some uh, chemistry with players you know like you want him on the field working with Bo working with Pania 
working with Roe, whoever else is out there to figure things out. You want your back line to be your starting back line so you can figure out uh, who are the best guys there. I mean, during the MLS's back tournament, I thought for sure it was going to be Kessler and Farrell. I thought that was going to be your starting um, center backs. They were very good in the first two games, I thought. I'm, I'm very high on Kessler. I think that he has a very high soccer IQ. Uh, but we saw Mancian, we saw Delamea, we saw a variety of units being used out there. So I think that you really want to try to get the chemistry going. Um, and then if we're looking towards the end of the season, then you can start throwing out some of those younger guys and things aren't going well. Then you can start thinking about the future a little bit more because uh, some you, you might see some more turnover as far as contracts running out or maybe trades that are happening. So you want to be able to get – I mean, Renix should be getting some minutes. You know, we talked about this before, like, where is the depth that striker? Because you have Buxa, who's obviously the starter. You have Teal Bunbury that can start up there. But really, your guy off the bench that should be scoring goals is Justin Rennix. So he should be getting minutes somewhere uh, at some point during this stretch. Yeah, and, and, you know, I'm okay feeling, I think you can feel the competitive lineup while also leaning towards your youth. Um, I mean, I don't know why Henry Kessler has been sent to the bench. He looked pretty good in those first two games, and whenever he came off the bench um, in, in the tournament, he looked pretty good. So um, I, I hope we see a lot of Henry Kessler in the, down the stretch so we know what he is going into 2021. Um, I, I agree wholeheartedly about Justin Rennox. You know, you got a U20 uh, USA, uh, you know, player um, getting, you know, youth uh, national team call-ups and scoring goals in the U20 World Cup last year. He's getting, you know, five-minute cameos towards the end of games. Um, Isaac Anking has not played for the first team uh, since his debut at NYCFC a, a couple of years ago, and um, he looked pretty good uh, on Revs 2 uh, the other day. So um, I, I'm curious to see if we get a little more youth going forward. I know Bruce Arena said we would see some youth, um, but we, we never really did in this tournament, which was um, ultimately pretty, pretty disappointing. But um, moving on, we got another Carly Seal question, too. Uh, we're not done. A lot of people really, really concerned about this one. Dendon29 with arguably the most depressing uh, Carly Seal question uh, of them all. Do we see Carly Seal play for the Revs again? His contract status is murky with reportedly two option years. Uh, but he stated at the beginning of the season he would see what happens after this season. Jake, I'll, I'll go to you. Achilles' surgery is no joke, um, and he's he's turning 28, so um, I, I would still imagine that the Revs are going to be, you know, if there is a team option that will want to keep him on the team. But do you think we have seen the last of Carlos Hill in a Revs jersey? No, ab- absolutely not. And, and again, this is the nature of MLS contracts are weird and not always public and nonsense, and we all understand that. Um, the New England Revolution were able to acquire Carlos Hill on a, a fairly moderate transfer guy who's not, you know, anywhere out of his prime. Um, yes, Achilles injuries are not exactly fun. Um, and Carlos Hill is a guy who, as Seth mentioned, is usually everywhere on the field. So you, you need him at at 100 percent. But I think to a large extent that this team was was not so much built around Carlos Hill, but it's going to be designed around him. Very similar to how we saw Lee win. Lee Wynn was the guy who just made everything go. And I think Carlos, Carlos Hill can be that player. And I think he is that player. Whether or not he, he does this, you know, five, six, seven years in New England, that's another story. Uh, um, but certainly do I, do I think in 2021 and, and likely 2022 for both those option years, yes, I, I think we'll see, we'll see Carlos Hill in, in, in a New England Revolution uniform. Seth, you on the same page on this one? Yeah, I think so. Like you said, if there's a team option, obviously you pick it up um, and you go from there. I mean, even – a Carlos Hill who's recovered is going to be a pretty good player and it'd be foolish for them to just let, let him go uh, in that situation. 
Yeah, and the one thing I was thinking about is, you know, if you're the Revs, you know, and, and let's say you were to field offers on Carly's heel, the the potential transfer fees are going to be a lot less. If he doesn't play again the rest of the season uh, and, and then people are making bids on him post-2020 before 2021, you know, the money is not going to be where you want it to be and the interest is not going to be where they want it to be because of the Achilles surgery. So um, if there's a team option, I mean, I don't see the Revs turning down a team option. Carly's heel would have to force a move. Uh, and, and maybe that's what he wants, but um, I, I don't see any benefit from the revs selling him for pennies on the dollar to uh, to, to move on from him. So, and even even I think with with the Achilles injury, uh, if he's able to go out and prove to another team on trial that he's still he's he's at a hundred percent, there's no reason why the revs couldn't ask for three four million and probably get it. Like that's that's a small time transfer fee really in the international market which is why i think it was such a great piece of business for the revs a couple of years ago so oh yeah one of the, probably their best acquisition i mean mm-hmm. are uh, potentially their, their biggest acquisition ever but i i cannot envision um them walking away from carly seal due to this injury so we do have another question here david civilian asks us is there any possibility to replace carly's heel from overseas or is the team tapped out um, quick update on the Revs roster situation. Their senior roster stands at 18 with Luis Caicedo put on the season-ending injury list. So there are two roster spots open. However, obviously, no designated player spots. Um, it's unclear if Luis Caicedo's international roster spot opens up uh, due to his injury. I don't think it does. There's nothing specifically in the rules about it. Um, and it's also unclear how much allocation money they have to play with. Obviously, they just spent 300000 on Matt Polster. Jake, I'll start with you. Uh, do you think there's any possibility the Revs replace Carly's heel, um, and, and if they have the wiggle room to do so? Not as not as a like for like acquisition. No, you you have enough weapons on offense that the only other the only other piece that that I would I would maybe be looking for would be. I mean, God, I I mean, if, if Polster Polster's the number six. I don't know where else the revolution would would be adding towards. Do you go out and get another true striker type so that maybe you can you you decide, you know what? Bo is the number 10. We need more people who are actual strikers, not Renix who's kind of a striker, Teal who's kind of a striker, um Busco who's definitely a striker. And then you have a whole bunch of wingers and 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 you know midfield hybrid types. Um, I think adding a, a, but wouldn't adding a second striker there. I mean, you'd have to do some major formation changes if you have two strikers yep. and then Gustavo Bo. And I, I mean, exactly. So I mean, you you'd be running into a whole bunch of 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 messes. You know, New England has been very cagey with their roster building uh, under Bruce Arena. I think they've done very well. You know, I I think Matt Polster is eventually going to replace on the roster either one of Caicedo or Zahibo. I don't think you can carry both of them. It would, international spots at their salaries so yeah i i think the 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 big the big issue i think is yes salary cap wise i i doubt they have the room um and and there's no reason to you have enough options and enough enough tactical i think utility uh that you don't need to you don't need to go out and get another number 10 you have enough you have enough options i think really is is what it boils down to and i don't think they have a lot of wiggle room to make a long-term investment Mm -mm. I think no. we're, this question specifically mentioned an international player, and first you're out of international spots, so you'd have to acquire another international spot. Um, but I, I don't think you can make a long-term investment if you expect Carly Seal to come back next season. Um, so I, I'm, I'm curious to see how they wiggle their way around. I, I think maybe they go after a one-year rental. Um, I'm going to throw this. I'm going to you know, in the spirit of bringing ex revs back to uh, New England, which Bruce Arena seems to uh, love to do. I mean. 
Lee Wynn is coming off the bench for for Miami. You know what I mean? Like maybe maybe you can acquire someone on the cheap, uh, like a Lee Wynn, kind of in an, in an aging twilight year of their career type of acquisition. But I don't think you can make a big international splash. No, that would that would be that would be the better option is either getting a young player on loan and either using him off the bench or using him as a, a player who gets like sixty minutes a game. Or I think you're right. The better option would be make a trade, get an MLS veteran. You know, probably for you know draft pick some allocation which i think the revs have a decent amount of that that would be the better option it's not going to be in an international signing um not not at a position where you already have too many international signings in the in the striker playmaker type type role um moving on here uh tom quinlan asks us will there actually be a season um this was asked before the uh, uh schedule announcement so i'm going to revise this to uh do you guys think the season will finish uh, and some teams are, are are trying to get fans into stadiums. Um, so real quick, we're not Nostradamus. Uh, Seth, I, I know we've kind of laughed at questions like this because we really have no idea what's going to happen. But um, do we have confidence that the the MLS will finish out their season this year? I, I think so. I think there's a lot of fle- flexibility going on uh, with the plans. Um, it was even mentioned that they might be looking into um, points per game as opposed to just a pure uh, standings aspect to it. Um, I think the league really wants to do the best they can to get games played. They're going to be as safe as possible. Uh, Don Garber admits that he is going to potentially postpone games, that he's going to move games. He anticipates that happening absolutely. Um, So it's just going to be a week-by-week basis. I think it is going to be really interesting and frustrating to be a part of that. I'm thinking about um, when the the DC-Toronto game was about to kick off, but only DC was there, and it was, like, kind of scary to think about. Like, oh, man, like, what is the outbreak like right now, and how can this actually be happening within the bubble? But the bubble ended up being very safe, ended up being a huge success, obviously. Um, You know, looking at Nashville and Dallas, who are now obviously created some sort of COVID rivalry for years to come. Um, they're going to play each other multiple times, it sounds like. But they, but that's a situation where that was their home markets that were having the issues, and they brought it in, and the bubble successfully kept them from spreading it to other teams. So I think they're going to have to be really um, really clear about testing as they travel. I love the idea that it's in and out. I love the idea that it's reason, regionalized. Um, I think that we're going to see some most of the season happen. I do get – it is going to be interesting to see if there's – a a complete outbreak within a team and if that team is just withdrawn from the rest of the year uh, or they have to wait longer and they have to, you know, just play, play more games after people have recovered. That's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, but I do think that there's going to be a rest of the regular season. Jake, you concur with that statement? I do. I, I and forgive me if I, if I start talking more like someone who, who answers work phone calls, um, because you guys both know what I do for a living. Uh, I don't think that there should be fans. I, I think there should be still some kind of a regional bubble, obviously with 20-something MLS teams. It's, that's a lot harder to do, um, but it, it worked for the MLS is back tournament. Um, if there is some kind of a, a postseason tournament with however many teams, I would like there to be another bubble, whether that's, again, in Florida or in Texas or in California. Um it was, I think, successful. Um, I think that's the model that we should be trying to adhere to as much as possible um, as far as, you know, c- continuing to not give everyone, uh, you know, pandemic-causing virus. Um, you know, I, I know I, I personally 
uh, won't be attending games this year. I might not be attending games next year. Um, it really depends. Um, you know, I think we're rather fortunate in New England that I think most people up here are, you know, wearing masks, doing what they need to do and and not taking, you know, significant risks. Um, and and obviously we've seen a few teams that have not done that. Looking to you, Miami Marlins. Um so yeah, you know, I it, it it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic. It's it's you know sports sports is going to be changed for this year, probably changed for next year. Um, you know, there's already talk about college football playing in the spring since they really don't have the capacity to do it now because I really think they want fans um, is really the big problem there. Um, MLS is one of the few sports I think that's I think done very well and doesn't necessarily need the fan base in the stadium as much. I don't think that's been as important, but obviously the financials are different. The financials are growing in, in soccer. Um, they're not making the billions that the other major four sports are. So um, The other thing too that I'll say, I, I think they benefit too from watching MLB and USL kind of start. I mean, I, I think, you know, I know some teams want to put fans in. And I think MLS teams rely on ticket revenue a little bit uh, more so than, you know, MLB and, you know, or whatever. But you know, maybe maybe like a team like the Revs that can't have fans in their stands. I mean, sell uh, sell. You know, I, I think the cardboard fans that MLB is doing is a pretty cool idea. You know, um, I, I think you can put some cardboard fans sell sell a uh, seat, quote unquote, for the rest of the year for whatever. I, I don't know how much they're they're charging, but you know, I, I think teams are getting creative in how they're raising money alternatively to replace for ticket and concession sta- uh, uh, sales. Um, and so I, I'm sure MLS will kind of go down that route and kind of you know, figure out how to do it. And also with USL and MLB, they're, they're figuring out, you know, you know, Miami Marlins aren't taking it seriously. They can kind of uh, look at the other leagues that are doing this trial and error and kind of learn from them too. So um, I have confidence. I think they're going to try to see this thing out. Um, and unless there is a major outbreak in uh, USL or throughout the league, I don't see any way they don't try to close this down. And, and they might go the MLB route, whereas if a team does get sick, they just sit them out for a week. Just sit them out, yeah. Yeah. I think the big thing for me is that this if, if there was ever a time for MLS to go to the owners or find some kind of partner and say, listen, we're chartering every flight for the next two years. We understand it's going to cost a lot of money. We understand that it's going to be a pain for a lot of other people. We need to charter flights. We can't have teams flying commercial in the middle of the pandemic going in and out of Florida and uh, Louisville and and all the hotspot areas in the south, southeast and California probably as well. It, 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 you can't be doing it. it needs it needs to be a chartered flight you need to limit as much contact as possible um and if there was ever a time for the mls players union to you know really you know get the owners to step up and say hey this is what we really need to make this work and you guys got to figure out the financials of it because this this has to start now now that we've talked about the revs losing uh, in the mls's back tournament uh, and the pandemic and carla's heel being out for the season, we have more kind of sad, depressing news uh, from a Revolution fan standpoint, and that is Matt Turner is allegedly in the process of getting a Lithuanian passport, according to Charlie Davies on the Extra Time podcast. Revolution Report asks us, what are our thoughts about Matt Turner's interest from Europe? And apparently it's mutual interest. Um, Seth, I'll start with you. Uh, how concerned are you? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. If he wants to go and there's interest out there, the Revs have to sell him. It just makes sense. Um in the past, we've seen that the Revs try to hold on to guys and prevent that from happening. We saw that with Shari Joseph. We saw that with Tara Twelman. And there's obviously some some aspects of that that make sense. You, you don't want to lose these big players. But in the case of Matt Turner, he 
just signed a multi-year contract. He signed that in August 2019. My guess is that it was a two and a half year contract. So probably we're looking at you know 2022 being a time that he is going to be free, and you don't want to lose him uh, on a free transfer. You know, you, you want to make sure you get money for him as a guy who's on the verge of being on the national team, a guy who's getting a lot of of uh, credit, getting a lot of recognition. Uh, so to lose him on a free, I think would be really devastating. Uh, so if the money comes in and there are good offers there, you have to say yes. Um, if he wants to go, you have to say yes, because that also makes it clear that you're a team that's willing to sell off players, that you're not going to just force them to stay in MLS with some sort of contract. You're not going to be a, a stiff negotiator. Uh, you're going to be someone that's going to be willing to move on from players, and that's going to allow you to attract players later on. Is it going to be devastating to the Revs? Yeah, absolutely, because I don't think Brad uh, Knighton is a full-time starter. I think that he's a, a great backup, that when the time comes, he can put in a shift and, and do that for a few games. But I don't think that he is the future. I think Jeff Caldwell, I haven't really seen much of him. Uh, so I'm not really sure if he's ready to step in that role. Uh, I do think it's interesting that you have someone like Joe Rice with Revs 2 you know, doing pretty well down there. Um, obviously, I'm not ready to give him the keys to be the starter for the revolution. But this is where I think you hope that Revs 2 could be the right pathway to the first team. That you, you sign some guys, you take a look at them and say, you know what? This guy's ready to play for the first team, so maybe we can move on from somebody else and allow that other person, like Matt Turner, realize his dream. So good for him for getting it. Uh, I think that if you're a Revs fan or a Revs pundit, you're kind of concerned because he has been absolutely sensational these last couple of years. And I, I just want to kind of hype up Joe Rice a little bit because if you have not been watching Revs 2, we're, we're two games in. Uh, but there were some clips of Joe Rice, uh, I think, against Hartford Athletic, where he's making some pretty phenomenal saves. He made a phenomenal save um, the other day against Orlando City B. Um, you know, I'm pretty impressed with Joe, and I believe he played for, I think it was Loudoun United. Um, so he does have USL Championship experience. I know Colin Verfuth is the first uh, Revs 2 player to get an MLS contract. I would not be shocked if Joe Rice is the second. Uh, he, he's been phenomenal uh through a few games um and i know they have one draw and one loss so far but uh, that is certainly uh, you know not due to a, a lack of a bad goalkeeper um and i also you mentioned brad knight and seth um i do want to say that the, the week last year where matt turner and, and brad knight signed their extensions if you read the press releases matt turner's press release says he signed a multi-year contract extension and, and brad knight just says a contract extension so i wouldn't be shocked if brad knight is a free agent at the end of this year um, and he signed a one-year contract um, obviously if matt turner leaves i'm sure that kind of changes things and maybe Brad Knight and the incentive for him to stay in New England or the revs to keep him uh, certainly increases. But, you know, there's, there's a very good chance that Matt Turner and Brad Knight leave the team after this year. Um, and, and you're looking at Jeff Caldwell or Joe Rice as, as potentially your, your number one choices in-house. Um, I'm sure they'd go out and, and make a goalkeeper at the top of their list. But, um, you know, it, it it's a bit concerning. It, it, kind of like Carly's heel too. Matt Turner is not someone you can easily replace. Jake, really quick, do you have any thoughts on uh, any, any concerns I, I am I am not concerned at all if Matt Turner goes, he's going to go. Let me let me rephrase what we signed Matt Turner for. Undrafted rookie free agent. Every anything that we get for him on a transfer fee is one thousand percent profit. Um that would be again good drafting. 
uh, by someone in the Revolution organization, because that's the one thing we can still do uh, top to bottom is draft players. Uh, we always haven't always developed them, but that's a different matter. Yeah, if, if Matt Turner goes, um, I think he goes to Europe. He firmly puts himself in that number, probably top five goalkeeper conversation for the USMNT for at least the next couple of years, uh, depending on how many minutes he gets. And and that's the real key there is is we want to see Matt Turner with the USMNT because we want the Turner train to go national. And then we want the Turner train to go global. And both of these things will succeed if Matt Turner goes to Europe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, you, you mentioned the profit argument. It certainly would be a good piece of business. I think Remy Roy deserves a massive raise uh, when that transfer goes through. If you guys listen to our Jay Heaps interview from last May, which if you haven't yet, please go back and do that. But uh, Jay Heaps gave a lot of credit uh, to Remy Roy for finding Matt Turner uh, and, and turning him into the goalkeeper that he was today. He certainly was a diamond in the rough. Uh, we did also did get a question here from Mike Kennedy, or well, and I'll just quickly address this. But he says, if Matt goes to Europe, will you still be a pro Matt Turner podcast? Uh, and I replied on Twitter, but I said that as long as he never dons a Atlanta United or a New York Red Bulls jersey, we will be a Matt Turner prod- podcast. So, and we might be a Joe a pro Joe Rice podcast in the near future. Who knows? If we ever start Revolution Two recap, um, we'll, that'll be the uh, pro Joe Rice podcast. But. Uh, but yeah, but enough about the Lithuanian legend. Chris Falukas asks us, was the Kellen Rowe re-signing an indication that Bruce Arena knew Carly Seal might be out for a bit? Uh, or do you think that he made that signing uh, for oh. midfield depth? Yeah, Jake, light bulb just went off in your head. That is a fantastic question, sir. That might be one of the best questions we've ever had here. Um, it wouldn't be wrong, would it? It wouldn't be wrong. I think the timing is a little bit off because allegedly Carly Seal suffered this injury in preseason. And Car- and. Kellen yeah, Rose signed in I December. Mean, true, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, yes, the timing's off, but I mean, like, maybe, maybe it's possible that, that Carlos Hill was more carrying something at the end of last year, or maybe pick something up that we wouldn't know about. Obviously, we noticed, hey, he's not playing preseason games, um, but that, it, the, the, the idea or the, the logic would not be wrong, that obviously, again, Kellen Rowe, in my opinion, um, never found a great natural position because, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. And that was the problem for the New England Revolution under Jay Heaps in general. If you have all these guys, what the heck position do they play? Diego Dever really found a position. Scott Caldwell just sort of became the holding midfielder, but I I, I guess that's his natural position. But yeah, I, I, I think that's a very that's a very interesting concept of if the Revolution knew that, that heel wasn't going to be 100%, why not bring back veteran an option who's been with you for seven eight years the one thing I'll, I'll add to which is why i disagree and i'm on the other side of this is that kellen rowe has been playing a central midfield role he hasn't really been playing that cam carlis heel role when carlis heel has been out so i i think that is the other it's possible that he i mean kellen rowe can play kind of a utility position he can kind of play wherever you need him to be so i i, I kind of view it as just more of a you know kellen rowe is the brock holt of the new england revolution where he kind of fills in holes wherever you need it to be um you know maybe carlis heel was you know feeling it a little bit at the end of the last season. And, and maybe this was a additional depth signing, but um, I, there are some dots connected here that I personally don't see. I see how those dots are connected, but um, I personally, I think it says more about Diego Fagundes, who we seem to be seeing less and less of as time goes on. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that Kellen Rowe is, you know, kind of coming in and kind of playing that central midfield attacker role, which we saw Diego Fagundes in, uh, especially at the start of the season. Um, I, I think it says more about Kellen Rowe phasing out Diego Fagundes more than anything else. Um, Seth, Jake and I are on different wavelengths here. You, you have anything to add on this one? Who's right? 
Yeah, I think that he was just brought in as, as depth, especially in that center area. I will say, just to add a little bit to, to Jake, um, when Kellen Rowe played on the national team under Bruce Arena, he was playing on the outside, um, more on the left, I believe. Um, so maybe like, if, if you want to believe Jake's line of thinking, maybe you could use that as a piece of evidence to have your case. But I think it's just more of, you know, here's a guy who hasn't been playing. He knows the area well. He knows um, – Bruce Arena well, uh, and he and we know that he likes to play in the center of the park. I mean, for the amount of times he played left back and had to answer from us media members, do you like playing left back? Over and over again, he kept saying, I like to play in the middle. Uh, and then by the end, you could tell that he was very sick of the same questions and the same articles being uh, put out over and over again. Uh, so I, I think that he likes to play there. With the, the injury to uh, Carlos Heel, I think a p- part of that had to do with the the cleats he was wearing, that he has switched his cleats a little bit. Uh, I believe there was something in the Boston Globe about that. So I think it was kind of a, a little bit of a freak injury. Uh, but who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll find out later on that this is something that he would been, you know, laboring him towards the end of his first season. Um, it got worse as he head back into preseason. Uh, and now, obviously, the surgery is um, necessary. It almost, if that is the case, I don't, we don't know enough information. But it reminds the whole situation actually kind of reminds me of Jermaine Jones. If you remember Jermaine Jones um, playing injured a little bit for the Revolution and then forced to undergo uh, a surgery, and that like was a big shock for the team. Um, so that's obviously what we're seeing now is that you know he he was a little bit injured, he recovered enough to play that full game, and then it looks like um, that that injury is going to end up needing surgery, and that's going to be a long term uh, miss for the Revs. And we don't know this, but it's. You know, if you look at the timeline, you, you know, look, I think a lot of people were critical of Carlos Hill not getting this surgery a little bit earlier in the season when there was this big kind of time lapse. Uh, and, and you have to think, you, you wonder if, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the pandemic hit uh, and non-elect, non, non-emergency uh, surgeries were kind of postponed by most hospitals. You wonder if that weighed into the decision, if Carlos Hill was kind of, you know, delayed surgery because they were unable to do surgery on him or, or whatnot. Um, you wonder if, you know, that had an impact of the timing of this whole thing. Um, I can't imagine that he wanted to, you know, go to, I, I mean, he, in, even now he went to Spain for the surgery. You wonder if uh, the pandemic is the reason why he traveled to Spain uh, to have the surgery done. So uh, it, it's very interesting in hindsight how this has all gone down. It's, it's obviously frustrating to not have a healthy Carles heel for, uh, you know, the entire season uh, and then get to the MLS back tournament and uh, realize, um, you know, it needs major surgery and he's out until 2021. Um, and also I just want to let uh, everyone know if you're listening to this, you already know the title of this podcast, but I just want to let Jake know that this podcast is going to be named Achilles heel with heel spelled G I L. Hang on. Where's my red card for bad puns. It's over here somewhere. I think Hang that's on. a great, pun. that is a great All pun. Right. What time is 1132 AM August 9th, 2020. That is Rick the greatest Johnson, pun I've ever red had. Red card issued okay we've marked it down the, the listeners will side with me the listeners will go side to your with room me. sir go re- go out well i am technically in my room but anyway oh. uh <laughs> i do want to get to something before you depart here uh which is seth you had an, a great article about brad friedel i think we mentioned it on our last podcast but we haven't had you on since then um about brad friedel and his kind of his tactics and uh you know how team the players kind of responded to it and, and kind of how the cagey relationship between him and the players if you haven't read it uh, please go look it up. 
Um, as I told Seth before uh, this podcast, if you have uh, writers from The Athletic retweeting your work, obviously uh, you've done something right. Uh, Jake, what was your kind of response to the article? Uh, my response to the article is, I think what my, my response was when we fired Brad Friedel, and and I, I fear that Brad Friedel does not know why he got fired. Um, this is not Europe. It will never be Europe. It is MLS is by far and away the most different thing from Europe you could possibly have because there's salary caps, because there's everything else. Um, to try and bring in that type of professional dynamic and two-a-day practices and getting yelled at by the union saying, hey, you got to give you guys a day off. Like there's different rules. To not know that going in, to not ask, to just assume this is how I'm going to do things. And to never change your mind and to not realize that the reason why you got fired was because this is what you're going to do. You never you never change it. So this is what I'm doing. Never adjusted it. Never got to know your players. Never seemed like you were an approachable type of a person. My, my takeaway from the quotes is a year and a half after Brad Friedel got sacked. Not even a year and a half. A year, year after he got sacked. Brad Friedel still doesn't get it. And that worries me because I don't think that Brad Friedel is a bad coach. I don't think that Brad Friedel is a bad person. Um, I fear that he's going to get another opportunity, and it's going to be stateside, and and he's going to try it again. And that's going to be his last opportunity because because he doesn't get what didn't work in New England. Uh, Seth, do you have anything to add? I, I know I, you don't have to comment on it since you were the author of it, but I, I wanted to see if you had any uh, extra thoughts on uh, the article. Yeah, it, it was it was really interesting to put together the article. Um, I had a few sources that came to me and talked to me about uh, what it was like to play under Brad Friedel. And then uh, obviously I reached out to Brad himself and spoke to him for a half an hour. Um, if you talk to Brad Friedel, he's a very confident individual. Um, and for the very first time I talked to him in the bubble uh, during his first preseason, you saw that. Like, he believes what he believes. He believes in his methods. He believes in his um, way of seeing the game. And when you talk to him, it's it's you can hear it and be like, yeah, I can totally understand what you're saying. And I think with the rules aspect, a lot of what he wanted to implement, I think, is the right uh, things. I think they're, they're good ideas to have. I mean, to, to um, require that there are times when you don't have a phone – or require that you there are fines that you're implementing, um, even the idea of dressing up on game days or whatever. I think those are okay ideas, but I think his inflexibility and to recognize his audience makes it difficult. Um, it is very difficult for players to get to the stadium as early as they're being asked to when they're coming from Boston, um, and I think it's it's it is frustrating to have to. Uh, wait till everyone gets there before you can enter the meal room. So imagine after practice, you know, you take 10 minutes to get, you know, done, to get, you know, showered, to get your clothes on. And then this other guy's waiting to get treatment and he's not going to be ready for 45 minutes. That's really frustrating. On game days, not to know the starting lineup. Uh, everyone has to dress up. Everyone has to show up. And they all are, are being treated as equals in that moment, not know the starting lineup. That's really frustrating. Um, even for guys who aren't, like, no, they aren't going to be on the 18 because they have to dress up. They have to be there. They have to then switch into different clothes to go up to the, the, the box to to look. Um, and they have to be there so early is a really frustrating thing. So I just think that he didn't really know his audience and that he didn't listen to the players um, enough. And he, he even admitted that. He's like, there were some players I did listen to. There are other players I did not listen to. Um, and, and 
he was reflective about that and saying, maybe I could have listened a little bit more and adjusted my policies as opposed to kind of sticking in and being uh, stubborn. Uh, there was also an interesting part of the, the interview that was left out where he talked about how he thinks that he gives out a more intimidating um, demeanor than what's actually true, that when people see him and mm -hmm. understand his presence, they're like, well, they think I'm more intimidating than I am, that I'm actually someone that can be listened to and, and talked to. Um, the final thing I'll say here is that I think that the, you know, the, I, those ideas and the rules, I think those are one thing. The bigger issue at play here is this idea of tactics. And um, I talked to three sources and basically all, all I heard was that this was the, the sessions were straight fitness. Um, one point, one person actually said um, that the the ball was there as a distraction. Um, it was fitness with the ball, and one person said it was probably ten or twenty percent. That was the highest percentage I got. Ten or twenty percent tactics, and um, the rest of it was was um, was fitness type of exercises. And I think that that's that's not a way to necessarily run the team. And I think a lot of uh, individuals within that locker room said that it wasn't like anywhere else they had been that other places had spent time like getting on the field saying like you go here you go there you do this and that might have been like 80 percent of the time and 20 percent is fitness they said that it was reverse um with the revolution of brad friedel just to recognize brad friedel totally disagrees with everything that was said right there he says that he could show hours and hours and hours of film showing the patterns that they wanted to have and then showing the tactics they wanted to have um, and he says that, like, the methods that he was using was used by some of the best coaches in Europe. Um, he admits that maybe he could have taken a more methodical way to explaining, maybe slow things down a little bit more. But in the end, he says that he knows his tactics could work. It's just it didn't work in MLS. Um, and, and so there was obviously just that disconnect between the players and the coach. Could some of Brad Friedel's uh, ideas work? I think there's possibly. Um, but I think that given the roster he had and given the time he had, they just weren't going to work with the New England Revolution. And he admits it too in regard because he knew there were some players that he wanted to ship out to send elsewhere, but he wasn't allowed to do those things. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if, if Bradfield will ever go back into coaching. He said himself he's happy to be a, an agent right now. Um, he thinks that's a good role that that fits him well. That was from the Charlie Charlie's uh, Bohm article which is interesting that that came out, you know, a couple of weeks before my article. Um, and, and one of the sources I talked to said um, he doesn't know if uh, he ever sees Brad Friedel coaching again. He's not really sure if Brad Friedel will ever have that opportunity again. Um, so it, it was an interesting period in MLS. I know that I, I bought into it uh, when I first, you know, met the man and saw the tactics working because of the high press. Um, but I think by, you know, the midway point, you know, my sources I talked to said by, by about six months into it, he had lost the locker room and it was kind of over at that point. Again, Brad Friedel says that's more of an opinion than, than anything else. And he, you know, recognizes that also that he recognized people that he wanted to ship out at that point. So very interesting era in, uh, in Rev's history. Uh, I think that everyone is happy with, with Bruce Arena and what's happening now and that the team is looking forward to a new era. And, uh, you know, you gave a lot of uh, good detail. I won't go too far into it, but um, I, I think one thing that I do, I mean, if anyone has been listening to our podcast for years, you know that, you know, me and Sean are not particularly sympathetic to Brad Friedel um, and, and his tenure here. But one thing that I do 
think that's interesting, and I don't remember if it was your article, Seth, or, or if it was the um, the other article you, you referred to, but uh, he, he made a comment of, you know, he'll know the situation he's getting into or something along those lines. Uh, and it's just clear that he thought he had more say over the roster uh, and, and players that leave to, to, to admit that uh, he went to have some, some players uh, dealt uh, and he got pushback on that. Um, he, he clearly just didn't seem to have the control that he thought he had. Um, and, um, you know, I, I certainly think there's... There was a kind of systematic failure uh, from the front office. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I think Friedel's tactics were lacking a little bit, too. Uh, this was his first professional managerial job. And, um, yeah, like, I, I think when you have those tactics, you know, obviously, you know, Europe is not MLS. And, you know, his only coaching experience was at the youth level. And coaching grown men who are professionals who have been in the league forever, um, you know, they respond differently to youth players who are, you know, uh, looking to uh, kind of prove themselves, you know. So um, I, I think it was a pretty big learning experience for Brad Friedel. I hope he gets a job somewhere else. I'm curious to see if he has learned those lessons. I, I think some things he's learned, some things he hasn't. Uh, but it's it's a very interesting look into the team. Uh, and, and, you know, we talk about losing the locker room too, Seth. Uh, one thing I want to remind people of is Brad Friedel walked in during the Lee Wynn situation and Brian O'Connell, uh, formerly of uh, New England Soccer Today, formerly host of this podcast, um, he reported very early into Brad Friedel's tenure that the Lee situation, Lee Wynn situation was dividing the locker room a little bit. Uh, and, and a lot of players were not, a lot of veteran players were not happy with how it was being handled. And so you wonder, you know, how that situation went out because Brad Friedel obviously was kind of, um, you know, sternly towing the line there and, and saying, you know, um, you know, he wasn't at preseason, so he's out of the 18 and, you know, he's, he's buried on our depth chart and Zach Carabo is a, you know, my backup 10, not Lee Wynn. Uh, so, so, you know, he was kind of saying all these things. You wonder how those, the players were interpreting that uh, uh, along with the, this, uh, whole culture shock, uh, so to speak. So, um, yeah, very, very interesting, uh, perspective on the, the Brad Friedel era. So if you haven't read it yet, please go to the Mint Musket and read Seth's article. Yeah. And if, if, if three, if three players, come to you as a coach and tell you that your ta- your your training sessions are all fitness and they're not tactics your training sessions are all fitness and they're not tactics that is a coaching problem and again that speaks to the inflexibility of of the man whether or not he understands that i i don't know i was pretty shocked to hear that he uh there were some listen li- some players that he did not listen to i, I thought that was pretty interesting and as i say learning experience for uh brad friedel but some quick other news uh, uh news and notes that i'm just going to hit on real quick we're running a little bit over right now but uh revs two obviously have started their their first two games as i alluded to uh since our last podcast uh zero zero draws in their first ever game uh, and then they lost two nothing to orlando city b on friday um i watched that game there was a red card early in the game uh which was a very clumsy Ter- red card red card yeah just a professional worse foul. than your bad pun red card <laughs> yeah if you have a yellow card um you know grabbing a jersey uh, for, a, for a tactical foul in the 30th minute is not great so um not, they were they were there they they hung with orlando city for most of the game with 10 men um so you know some promising things from them and obviously i think joe rice played pretty well um no goals through two games. Obviously, the offense is lacking a little bit, but uh, I, I liked Isaac Hanking. Uh, I thought he played pretty well. Um, real quick, I think you both watched it. Uh, any any players impressed you guys so far on Revs 2? Hanking was great. Um, he, he was all over the field, obviously a first-team player, uh, but he created a lot of opportunities, four chances created as the final stats. Um, I also liked the, the play of uh, Orlando Sinclair. Um, he just seemed like a traditional number nine holdout player. Uh, 
the issue I had with him is that he didn't always know what the, pa- the pass to make or the, the shot to make after having his hold-up play. But I was just really – I was kind of honing in on him and watching him. Like you said, Joe Rice was good. Um, I'm really excited to see some of those younger first-team players get more opportunities with Reds too. Yeah, Damien we – have, we haven't mentioned Damien Rivera, but Damien Rivera definitely is, is- – the player I want to I want to see more of. Um, he's another one of those utility midfield types. I just I want to find out what positions uh, he can play, which I think is most of them, and then find out what position he's best at, and then how that transfers over to to the first team. And I think one one center back on the team, I think his name is John Bell. I mean, he he signed a few weeks before the season, uh, and he's looked very solid in defense. I know center defenders don't really get a lot of uh, praise, but you know, um, two goals really because they were missing a right back uh, through two games. Um, uh, you know, I think a center back coming in, I, I believe he was a second round draft pick um, in the 2020 super draft and the refs picked him up a few weeks ago, but um, that, that defense has looked very, very good. And he's made a very good pairing with uh, Colin Verfuth. So, um, you know, uh, I'm curious to see uh, how he does now the, getting, getting acclimated with the team and with the system. Uh, he's certainly shown off a, a, some, a, some pretty decent skills and as a second round draft pick, um, you know, obviously that's a potential MLS player. So um, that's another guy to kind of keep an eye on. Uh, really quickly, too, uh, speaking of center backs on Revs 2, Nick Woodruff has left Revolution 2 over concerns related to coronavirus. Um, unclear what he is doing long term, uh, but he is no longer with the team. Uh, that was reported by Matt Bluenstein. I think that's his name. Uh, Matt on Twitter, M-A-T. Or M-A-T. Uh, so it's unclear if he can go back to Michigan State. I'm not sure if usl league one counts as a professional contract so i don't know if he no longer has eligibility he never played with revs two so it's unclear what's happening there but um that's something that you should know if you want to know revs two roster news um and also trevor burns named academy player of the year um this traditionally does not necessarily mean he is a mls prospect because there have been some academy players that have uh moved on and, and have kind of played in the lower college ranks and have not uh, you know, done much, but uh, Trevor Burns has already appeared as a sub for us two in both games. Uh, and he's also committed to Georgetown, who is a, uh, you know, nationally recognized division one team. So um, if you're interested in keeping an eye on the future of the revs, uh, Trevor Burns is a name to keep an eye on. Uh, he's certainly turning some heads. And um, if you're watching revs two, keep an eye on it on uh, Trevor Burns to potentially come off the bench. So um, guys, any, any final thoughts before we depart here today? No, I'm just excited to see, uh, you know, soccer return. The MLS Backers tournament was a lot of fun. I hope there may be some consideration to bring that back as a preseason tournament in some way. Um, but, you know, the idea of regular season games that are meaningful uh, as we head to the playoffs is something that's really exciting. Um, so let's see what happens. Uh, shout out Plymouth Argyle going to League One. Um, also, League One, League Two in England are going to have salary caps, which will be very interesting because it seems like it's a very, very small salary cap. Um, so a team like Sunderland, who shouldn't be in the third division, really unhappy. They're only allowed to spend like two and a half million pounds or whatever it is. And, um, yeah, I don't think they're doing another season of Sunderland until I die, but, um, that'd be a fascinating watch to see the, uh, owners freak out over a salary cap. Although maybe they're happy about it. Um, cause you know, it might inflate the, uh, the, the, you know, value of the team, um, I know uh, Rob, Bob Kraft has said things like he'd never buy a, a team that um, didn't have a, a salary cap or salaries in place. So, so maybe there's a potential that this would increase the value of Sunderland, and maybe the owners are secretly, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, doing a uh, you know high five in each other while um, you know cutting their employees' pay. I don't know. 
Um, I just want to also first I want to second Seth's comment about bring back the MLS is back tournament. I would love to see a uh, Florida or Arizona or Las Vegas or some sort of uh, tournament to kick off the MLS season. I think that uh, this format worked out really, really well. And I think it generated a lot of excitement. Um, so I, I think doing something in February post Super Bowl would be a, a great, great uh, addition for MLS. And I hope they give it some, ser- some serious consideration. Um, I also want to give a special shout out to our podcast brethren, Six States One Podcast on reaching 100 episodes. Uh, they did that a few weeks ago, and we haven't been on the air since since they, they reached that milestone, so I just wanted to give a tip of the cap to them. Guys, why don't you give us our, your Twitter handles? Jake, where can people find you on social media? Oh, it, when I'm not sleeping, you can occasionally find me at jcadanese43 and at the Bent Musket. Not a lot of writing going on, mostly working overtime and mostly sleeping, but uh, some replays, highlights of, uh, of the MLS Cup and, and other games have uh, been helpful at 4 or 5 in the morning, keeping me awake, so... Uh, you know, cheers to soccer being back. Hopefully uh, sports can return as safe as possible over the next couple weeks and months and, uh, you know, get through it again. Seth, where can people find you on social media? At SethMan31. Uh, I write for the Bent Musket. I'll probably go back into hibernation now that my life is getting busy again, but always willing to talk soccer on Twitter. And uh, if you're not following the Bent Musket on Facebook, too, they have a Facebook page. Please like it. You just go to the Bent Musket in general, too. Uh, I notice you guys have a guy covering Revs 2 with uh, some interviews with the players. So that if you're interested in Revs 2 coverage, which there isn't a whole lot of, um, I would say the Bent Musket is the best place to go. You can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap. And please like our Facebook page, our Revolution Recap Facebook page. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Five-star reviews are always greatly appreciated. The Revs are back in a few weeks with a Friday night matchup against the Philadelphia Union on August 21st, as previously mentioned. Uh, We should be back a few days after that with a new podcast to break it all down. But until then, thank you everyone for listening and go Revs.